The fast-paced world of sports business is evolving every day. And as an industry that's 90% business, 10% sports, and 100% passion, we're here to bring you true insights from the top professionals who drive today's world of front office sports. Our goal is to give you a true insider's look at one of society's most sought-after business industries. I'm Ryan Deal, and this is Sports Business Nation. Hey guys, thanks for joining us today on Sports Business Nation. I'm your host, Ryan Deal. We're thrilled to have you on board for the inaugural season of SBN, the podcast and content provider founded by passionate young sports professionals for the benefit of other passionate students and professionals of all types. The business of sports goes so much deeper than contract signings and Super Bowl rings, and here at SBN, we host top-level professionals from the real world of front office sports to gain from their insights on a different core subject each week. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can join us all season for an insider's look, and please tell your friends, family, and colleagues to do the same. To learn more about our mission here at Sports Business Nation and see everything we have to offer, please visit our website at www.sportsbusinessnation.com and follow us on all your social media, including LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And um, what we talk about amongst ourselves here is about if we are not making mistakes, we're not pushing hard enough. I mean, one, one of the things we like to do here is be different and be innovative and be first and get out in front and think about life a little differently. And if, if you do that, if you if you choose to do any one of those things, your likelihood of failure goes up dramatically. Whether they're Olympians on the track or corporate goliaths in the boardroom, we all understand the importance of being the first to get somewhere. And those same competitive drives dominate front office strategy in today's world of sports business. The drive to innovate and make something special appeals to all of us, but ultimately, it's only the pioneers at the forefront, like the Wright brothers or Jeff Bezos, who shape our shared experiences and impact the world, hopefully for the better. For this episode, and the finale of Sports Business Nation Season 1, we'll be discussing innovation and the importance of being first, and are lucky enough to spend our time with one of sports' most experienced and passionate innovators, Scott O'Neill. I guess my lessons are, one, if, if you're not failing, you're not pushing, and two, don't make the same mistake twice, and three... What are the lessons you learned and how can you apply them, not only for yourself, but for the benefit for others? In his current role, Scott serves as the Chief Executive Officer at Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, as well as co-managing partner of Elevate Sports Ventures. Mr. O'Neill has been the CEO at HBSE since the company's founding in September of 2017, when co-owners Josh Harris and David Blitzer united their multiple teams and properties under a single entity. And so, like, I'm, I'm, I'm charged up. Like, it brings me energy to be around people who see the world differently and have big dreams and, and big eyes and, and oftentimes look past all of the warning signs that come and just through a sheer will and enthusiasm can build a company. It's, to me, it's, like, so inspiring. As CEO, Scott oversees the strategic vision, leadership, operations, and global vision for all HBSE properties which include the Philadelphia 76ers, the New Jersey Devils, the Prudential Center, Team Dignitas, an internationally renowned esports team, NBA 2K League's 76ers Gaming Club, the Sixers Innovation Lab crafted by Kimball, the Grammy Museum Experience at Prudential Center, the Delaware 87ers, and the Binghamton Devils. While HBSE was formally unified in 2017, Scott has been overseeing the 76ers, Devils, Prudential Center, and minor league affiliates since 2013 as the chief executive. What a great, ex- what a great experience to, to 
to be forced to, to shut down and to decompress and then to kind of reformulate and ask myself what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be and, and what difference did I want to make in the world. Elevate Sports Ventures is an innovative sports and entertainment agency created in 2018 via a partnership between HBSE, Live Nation, San Francisco 49ers, and the Oakview Group, where Scott serves as co-managing partner. Prior to his current efforts with the HBSE properties and Elevate Sports, Scott was president of the Madison Square Garden Company, senior vice president of team marketing and business operations for the NBA and Teambo, as well as vice president of sales for the Philadelphia Eagles. In 1998, Mr. O'Neill was selected by his classmates at Harvard Business School to deliver their graduation speech, along with NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum. Scott previously obtained his undergrad degree at Villanova, and to this day remains a ravenous college hoops lover and true sports enthusiast. David Stern, I just saw a guy who, you know, he was in China in 1982. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, people weren't talking about China as a market. And now, of course, everybody, you know, all the sports leagues, everybody's kind of run into it. Um, but that's like real leadership and that is that's foresight and that's thinking differently and that's taking a chance. All right, great. And welcome back uh, for the benefit of our listeners and audience. Would you introduce yourself with your name and what it is you do, please? Sure. My name is Scott O'Neill. I'm the chief executive officer of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. Well, we really appreciate you coming on here today, Scott, as I know both hockey and basketball are in the thick of the season. We will try to be uh, respectful of your time as I know you're a busy guy. Um, diving right in, we want to talk a little bit before we discuss innovation and the importance of being first about your background. You've got a wide reputation as a competitive, family-friendly guy. Uh, as I hear you grew up one of five, I'm not too surprised. You had a great education getting your undergrad at Villanova, joined the industry for a bit before getting your uh, MBA at Harvard Business School. You know, as you look back on your time before getting into the sports business industry, Scott, what qualities or experiences do you think may have led to your success down the road? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say that, um, you know, I came from a, a pretty incredible family. Um, my family, um, my parents both worked, both entrepreneurs. They valued education very highly. They're both PhDs, and and neither were given anything. They had to earn everything they had. So I think from that early experience from a family life, um, I learned the value of hard work for sure. Um, I I worked hard, and I actually saw my parents every day, um, giving their all. Uh, they taught leadership development and training and teamwork and quality. So from the time I was uh, seven, eight years old. I was either collating decks or hearing them talk about the values uh, value of team. Um, I also grew up in and around team sports, so I, I think you know it just it, it, I think I, I have a tremendous kind of love and appreciation for the value of a team sport and how you lead and follow and win and lose and and sacrifice yourself for the good of the team. Um, and so so that I guess it's a it's an amalgamation of things uh, in my childhood that I think have helped along the way. Well, I imagine as somebody who leads sports teams, having a background in competitive sports, as well as a family that prides itself on leadership expertise, is probably a good place to begin. Um, staying with your earlier years, and you talked about working hard and seeing your parents work hard from an early age. Can you tell us a, about a job that you had maybe as a teenager or you know when you were in college that maybe you scraped your knees a little and learned some lessons the hard way, but now in hindsight, exactly the type of job where you learn some valuable lessons and maybe want your own daughters to have this day and age? Well, I hope my own daughters don't have to have the job I had when I was young. I had my first job when I was 14, um, and I was uh, working for a pool company, digging pools. So um, 
you know, I was like the young man on the totem pole or the low guy on the totem pole. So I always had the worst jobs. So when we'd finally put the liner in and fill the pool with water, there was always one person that had to go in the freezing cold water and, uh, and press in the liner. Um, yeah, it wasn't great. And, and then if there was a problem with the filter, we would carve out a little, like a, almost like a tunnel in the ground and they would like shove somebody in there with a little uh, light on my helmet. That was me to try to tell them what was happening. And they would pull me out by my feet. And then the, the jack, I was so little at that time, you know, when we were had to, we'd hit shale, we'd get jackhammers and, you know, I'd be feeling that for three days in my arms. Um, and to make matters worse, when we do cement around in and around the pools to put in, um, you know, the decking around, because oftentimes it's cement, and you'd have to take these wheelbarrows, and they'd probably be, I don't know, 80 pounds full of wet cement, and, and you build little little triangle um, triangles over the framing with two-by-fours. And I just remember being so little, like, I, I would be going, putting all my might into, like, push it up the little hill, and then push it down the hill, and, and inevitably, once a time, the weight would just, like, kind of tip me over. Um, and and that, that always drew... Uh, drew uh, not exactly the warm and fuzzy pats on the back. It's okay, kid. So it's a pretty rough and tumble environment. So that was that was one environment that it was it was ceramic pool, Ted ceramic pools, which I in Newburgh, New York, which I, I absolutely like. I love the experience. Uh, I, I always appreciated manual labor. I've, I've had mostly manual labor jobs when I was growing up. I, I worked uh, at a at a Pepsi plant delivering um, Pepsi machines. And there I got to understand the value of leverage. One almost fell on me. I actually had had a, a big guy named Ron um, catch a Pepsi machine that was falling down the steps on me. Just caught it. Like, that's how strong he was. Pretty amazing. What else did I do? I worked landscaping for a couple summers. I worked at a, a, a um, farmer's market. My hours were 3 a.m. till 12 noon. <laughs> I ate a lot of good fruits. It's been a bit, bit of a rough and, and tumble neighborhood in uh, East Hartford. But I think generally, like the sum of my parts early on were work, 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 work. And, and most people look so forward to Friday at five. I didn't. I, I always loved to work. I was comfortable. The second thing was, was just the range of people I got exposed to. You know, I was exposed to you know, the, you know, a wealthy family that was putting in a pool. And then, you know, a, a store owner in, in East Hartford that was coming to pick up strawberries, you know, in every nickel county. And, um, and I think the, the ability at a really young age to understand how to talk to, to different people in different situations has served me fairly well as well. That definitely sounds like uh, quite a diversity of experiences there. And I do guess I understand between the amateur spelunking, the jackhammering, and the chewing tobacco, maybe you don't want your kids to have these jobs. <laughs> like, I do understand that, I guess. You know, you know I had, I had one, one day, every, the watermelons would come up from Georgia, and that was always like my most terrifying day because... Um, we would be again the two like two young guys there. They would give us the worst job. So, so I usually on like either they usually put me dealing with customers because most customers spoke English as primary language. I was one of the few that did. So I, I would work with the customers, then go back and help like hop on a you know um, a um, forklift and, and pick up the fruits and all that stuff for the bigger customers. And the smaller customers, I would just help them out. And um, and watermelon day, they always take me and uh, one of the other guys, and they put us in the back, and we had to do like fifty count watermelon buckets, like so. Put it in, in, inevitably out of every 50, 75 watermelons, there'd be a snake inside one of them. And, um, and it was just terrifying to me, you know. And, um, but I remember this one guy's name was Randy. I can't remember his last name, but I can picture him like thick mustache. And he'd just come out of, out of prison somewhere, unfortunately. And, um, 
and and this this you know I, I pick up a watermelon and it's like you can feel the snake like rattling around in there and I, I like ah you know he just took a knife out and just uh, just killed the snake the first snake down so um, so I never I never lo- <laughs> no I'm sure, I'm sure they were harmless but uh, you know as a as an 18 year old kid who wasn't you know I was, I was I was not much of a not much of one for nature ever and didn't grow up in that kind of environment that was. You know, that was my most terrifying days. Your own little Steve Irwin experience. Well, I'm glad you made it out. Um, in looking a little further ahead here, uh, this this past April, actually, April 2018, Inc.com wrote an article on an interview you all did about how the 76ers, you like to think of running them like a family or a family business, and how you also feel that companies nowadays in the modern workspace need to accommodate working parents in, in some more forward-thinking ways. How is it you're able to cross-pollinate your strong family values at home with the companies you run in the office? I just want to just one little edit. Like we we run this like a family business with the accountability and discipline of a private equity front, um, controlled shop. I love the soft stuff. I love the opportunity to spend time and and get to know the people I work with and building an environment that that feels like a family is very much how I want to live. But I I don't want that to sound that it's that it's different from a, a hardcore know your numbers, live by your numbers type environment because it very much is so that the combination of that I think is the magic of our place quite frankly um, I I don't think there's any other way these days I, and, and maybe we're we're uh, at the forefront of it and people will follow but the way technology has impacted our lives um, there, there is the, the the line between work and home is a lot less defined it's, it, it, it's definitely more gray and, and so the extent that, you know, you come to the office and, um, and your, your daughter's school gets closed, you know, your daughter might be here with us or you might work from home or the extent you might, you know, have to deal with some bank, something at a bank and you just deal with it at work like I, or at home, there might be a conference call. Like I, I don't, I think the line is blurry. And, and, and so I think the, the bigger question is how to, how do we maintain the discipline um, in this environment to make sure that we're very present where we are. You know, are we present at home? Are we present at work? And are we doing the best? Are we doing, are we, am I being a great dad? Am I being a great husband? Am I being a great coworker here? And I, th- I think the extent that we can figure that out, you know, we're, we're closer to solving the world's problems than anything else. Absolutely. And having been lucky enough to work in some of your offices myself, I, I tell you, you know, things like, uh, when we have events where the families are allowed to come out or bring your kid to work day, I mean, those are some of the most fun environments uh, for any of the buildings at the companies you run. So I can tell it's definitely ingrained. Now, even if it was before your time with Harris Blitzer, um, as you look back on your rise in the sports industry, can you tell us a little bit about maybe one or two of the best mistakes you made along the way, Scott, and some of the lessons you learned from them? Yeah, if I wrote a book on my mistakes, it would be a, it would be quite a thick, voluminous, maybe two or three volumes long. So. So um, yeah, I've, I've made so many mistakes along the way, um, and I, I don't I don't have any shame about it. Like I, I think that life provides you such an opportunity to to grow and learn. And uh, what we talk about amongst ourselves here is about you know, if we are not making mistakes, we're not pushing hard enough. I mean, one one of the things we like to do here is be different and be innovative and be first and get out in front and. Think about life a little differently, and if, if you do that, if you if you choose to do any one of those things, your likelihood of failure goes up dramatically. And um, and I think the extent that you do trip and fall, it's okay. 
um, as long as you pop up a little quicker, the next, and it'll make the same mistake the next time. So, so boy, mistakes. I made a, an awful mistake when I was with the um, Philadelphia Eagles, where I went on a um, kind of a, a low end broadcast, um, like a what is it called, a community service television, and um, and I said I hadn't cleared it with our uh, public relations group. Big no no, Scott. You can't be doing on media without clearing it with PR. I'll tell um, you. And I hadn't cleared it with my boss, uh, but at that point, I think I was 24 years old, and you know, I said something really dumb after it, it being asked the same question 15 times that I alluded the first 14, and finally, I I answered the question about a stadium and would we move, and you know, some little crappy community television, and, and at the end of the day, it ended up in the in the back page of the paper the next day, um, and that was a big awakening. I mean, I, it should have been fired clearly um, because it, it caused all kinds of problems and issues in a, in a big storm in, in the city and so so I, again you know it's, it's you know, I haven't made that mistake again thank goodness but that is that is something that I certainly learned from I learned how to communicate better and um, I learned how to work within the system and I learned to go get media trained and understand how to answer questions and how to bridge off stuff you don't want to answer but that was a that was a pretty pretty tough one you know hoops TV we had a, a pretty pretty bad failure um, I went out and raised $15 million to create kind of the, the next version of um, what, what became NBA TV. Whoops. Um, and, and right right on the cusp of the, the uh, dot-com bubble burst. And so blowing through $15 million of other people's money um, in 18 months and having to lay off the 50-some-odd staff members, including like dear friends and family members, was uh, was a real tough one. And, and, and to be flat broke after that wasn't fun either. So, I mean, I... I can tell you, like, my timing was bad, my management was bad, my execution was bad, um, but the lessons, you know, stay with me to this day, you know. Um, people that work with me now know I talk about cash and cash management way too much, and I, I understand even in our early stage businesses that we we fund and start and some of that I'm on the board of, um, a lot of times they'll hear me talking about cash, they'll say, no, this is growth phase, I'm like, I want to understand the cash position. Um, I, you know, I unwound out of, you know, I don't know, we have probably 100 contracts that I had to wind down at the end. Even going through that process was a great learning experience. I'm calling companies we had contracts with, and I said, hey, we're going out of business. We pay 20 cents on the dollar now. Tomorrow it'll be 10. The day after is going to be five. And after that, you know, I'll be some, it'll be a locked away in a storage cabinet somewhere, and you'll never find me. So can we do a deal? So even unwinding deals was just a great experience in negotiation that, that served me pretty well these days. Understanding leverage points and timing, and and collaboration and communication and when when to say what on a in, in the in the heat of a, a uh, negotiation and when to walk away. So all, all these like like I said I, I I can go on with fifty lessons, but the but the failures come in come in uh, all shapes and sizes. I got um, fired from Madison Square Garden. I was president of Madison Square Garden. Great job. Um, born and bred in, in New York. Um, so it was a bit of a dream job as a, as a young executive rising up in the ranks. And it's it's tough to see your name in the paper, you know, O'Neill fired, O'Neill let go. So so that that tough is, that stuff I think for me was, huh, how would I say, like, what a great, ex, what a great experience to, to have to be forced to, to shut down and to decompress and then to kind of reformulate and ask myself what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be and, and what difference did I want to make in the world. That's a pretty good lesson to get, you know, in your early 40s. 
so I, I've had, like I said, I could go on, on my, my failure rant for, for three hours, but, um, but I, I always think like one, I guess my lessons are one, if, if you're not failing, you're not pushing and two, don't make the same mistake twice. And three, what are the lessons you learned and how can you apply them? Not only for yourself, but for the benefit for others. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, if nothing else, mistakes, a new opportunity to do things in a better way. So uh, I think that's a great way to go about looking at it. Uh, those are some great stories there. Although I think, you know, maybe you should be a little less hard on yourself. I'm sure you could write an equally long book on some of the good decisions you made, Scott. <laughs> we'll have you talk about, um, you know, here moving forward, the core of today's conversation is on, you know, innovations and the importance of being first. And this day and age, you know, there seems to be no shortage of innovation coming out of your camps. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a little over a year ago, end of the summer 2017, you guys announced uh, Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. And then a little under a year ago, January 2018, you guys announced a new collaborative venture called Elevate Sports in conjunction with the San Francisco 49ers, Live Nation, and the Oakview Group. What's so unique about what you guys are trying to do right now and, and where are you trying to head with all this? Sure. So I can start with, um, with Elevate, which I love. So we were at, um, we were at the uh, World Congress of Sports in, in California, Data Point, California. And we're sitting out back and uh, talking with some friends, Howie Newchow and Michael Veen, who run CAA, Paul Danforth, all the CAA um, guys. And then uh, Al Guido at the 49ers, Jared Smith, who runs Ticketmaster. Um, it's in my wiki. He was at OBG. And we just kept saying, hey, like, you know, we've all been friends. We've been in this business so long. We should do something together. And, and from that came Elevate, which is kind of a collaboration of, of four of those parties. And, um, and we just started about six months ago. We've got about a dozen clients. We're knocking on the door, and um, and it's our aim to create a, a world class company with incredible partners. And I actually, you know, we're working on a strategic plan now, so I'm not sure where it actually evolves to and ends up. I, I do know that that our partners in that business want to do really big things, and that's pretty exciting and fun. Um, our innovation lab is something that, like, I get up um, thinking about every day. We just added two more companies, which I don't think we've even announced yet. But. Um, but but they're uh, fantastic young entrepreneurs that add to this mix here. You know, we now have six companies in the lab, and they bring this just like entrepreneurial enthusiasm. You know, I, I, I mentioned before I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My um, my three brothers each run companies that that they either founded or or bought very very early stage. And so like I'm 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 charged up. Like it brings me energy to be around people who see the world differently and have big dreams and and big eyes and, and oftentimes look past all of the warning signs that come and just through a sheer will and enthusiasm can build a company. It's, to me, it's like so inspiring. Well, I'm actually glad you brought up the Innovation Lab because uh, I was reading an article from LinkedIn uh, about the Sixers Innovation Lab where Mike Wagner of Kimball Office referred to the labs as, quote, the perfect example of American ingenuity and entrepreneurial spirit. So how do you see some of these new initiatives, like some of these new ventures or the Innovation Lab or even just, you know, your general efforts for global brand expansion of both the NBA and NHL? How are those manifestations of your core innovative drives to just be first in creating something new? Yeah, being first is a lot more fun than being second. That I can tell you. And there's nothing wrong with being second. I, it's a, like philosophically, I, I think I got that from, from David Stearns. Like when I worked at the NBA, I, I just, I've been around a lot of people who do things really differently. Seth Berger, who founded N1, was a, was a co-founder at Hoops TV with me. And like he started a sneaker brand and out of the trunk of his car, you know? And, then, uh, and, and like to see him build a $200 million company, Pretty special. He's the guy who actually runs our innovation lab now. But 
being the long history guy. And then be, being with David Stern, I just saw a guy who, you know, he was in China in 1982. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, people weren't talking about China as a market. And now, of course, everybody, you know, all the sports leagues, everybody's kind of run into it. Um, but that's like real leadership. And that is, that's foresight. And that's thinking differently. And that's taking a chance. And, and I think, you know, having worked for some of the folks that I have, John Spolstra is my first boss, kind of a legendary guy who literally wrote the book on how to sell tickets in the NBA, president of the Nets, gave him my first big promotion um, from an assistant to a manager. Um, but, um, but like, you know, he just thought differently. And I, I, I don't know. I think I've been inspired by a lot of people I've been around um, to just have that mindset and then to be able to work for a company or with a company and with people who have that same like-minded spirit that, hey, we can do anything we put our minds to. Um, it's pretty fun. It's a good way, to, good way to spend a day. Well, and I appreciate you bringing up uh, your, your work with Mr. Spolstra. Uh, one of our previous guests from MSG, Ryan England, was talking about Ice to Eskimos is one of the books he recommends and, and certainly a staple for anybody who's getting into the industry now. Um, I was going to ask you about somebody you work with in the past, how you did things differently. So you kind of you kind of already uh, answered that question, but uh, very thrilled with the person you chose. Uh, somebody I look up to, certainly somebody I've never met, but would love to. Yeah, um, he's a, let me just give you a quick John Spolstra story. He, he's the guy like I, I assume I think he wrote a few books, but I think this one's in there is um, I remember we were, you know, we, we had an OK team like for the Nets, actually a pretty good team with Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson, Jocelyn Petrovich and uh, uh, but I Benjamin and Chris Morris, like a pretty good five. And uh, none of the guys ever emerged. And unfortunately, Jocelyn passed away in a, in a tragic car accident. But, but that team was actually pretty good. And we went into our renewal season, and we didn't know how to get people to come back that hadn't renewed. And um, it, it was his idea to, to send out rubber chickens. <laughs> so we sent out rubber chickens to the non-renewed season tickles and said, like, don't choke out or something. I, I can't remember what it was, and I just thought, man, this guy is unbelievable. Um, and he, he was, I mean, he wanted to change the name of the Nets to the Swamp Dragons because we, we, it was a little, the Netherlands is, is a swampy land. And went all the way up to the Board of Governors to get it switched. I mean, he, he just, everything was just, like, everything was on the table all the time. And he took, there were five of us that, that we would, um, he would take us out for, uh, for dinner once a week. And he'd think, like, as a 22-year-old kid, that John Spolster take you out to dinner and talk about anything. As long as it's related to business with him, and uh, it was pretty pretty incredible. I mean, I, I, I yeah, no, I've been pretty fortunate in my work for. Well, you let uh, John know that I'd buy a New Jersey Swamp Dragons jersey any day if I wasn't <laughs> such a dedicated Sixers fan at the moment. Um, um, so it sounds to me like a lot of what's been going on. You guys are doing some collaborative things with other companies, or you look at you know companies that now a company like uh, Legends that Elevate might compete with. There's a lot of new priorities that are kind of taking over the sports industry right now. Why do you see some of these trends towards opportunities like real estate investment, tech innovations, venture capitalist opportunities? Why have those kind of been trending through the industry the last five to 10 years? And, and why is this going to make the sports industry better in the future? Yeah, um, well, I would say um, a couple of things. One on on, um, on legends, you know, they're all we're, this business. Um, it's small. And um, and I've been in this business 25 years now. And so mo most of the guys, most of the people, men and women running these companies are people I either worked with, worked alongside, worked for, or are friends, you know? And so the Legends guys, you know, it's not really a competitive business. The Legends is a huge business, billion dollar business. They've got, you know, they were managing arenas. They've got a huge concession business. We could be with them in a little, little slice of the pie, but, but uh, I'm sure we'll partner in other 
And, uh, you know, Chad asked us at the Cowboys and Randy Levine at the Yankees kind of put that deal together. Our, our friends, our friends of mine, and Sherman and, and uh, Mike Tolman and Mike Andreco, the, the three kind of heads of that business are like dear friends of mine. Um, and, and so, and we were more, you know, kid about that competitiveness. Now, there's plenty of, plenty of, of business and work out there for all of us, I think. Um, so, so that, that part is, um, I don't know, it's fun. Like, I, I think about how we might, like, every business we look at, I always think about who we might partner with or who might be a fun person to be in business with or how, you know, given what we're good at and given what someone else is good at, how, how might we, how might we grow together? How might we build something really special together? So that's why I spend a lot of time on. So it's more seeing where the opportunities are coming from and just pursuing what makes sense, I guess, huh? Yeah, on the on the venture capital point um, and the real estate point, I just think these businesses, you know, if you can go back 20 years, 25 years when I started, I think the Nets are probably worth $15 million. The mm-hmm. Nets sold for $2.2 billion without their arena. And so, you know, you know that's, that's 25, and that's it. That's pretty exponential growth. So these brands are, are big and valuable. Um, it's a global business. So it's no longer that the Philadelphia 76ers are a big deal in the Delaware Valley. It's that the Philadelphia 76ers are a big deal around the world. You know, Ben Simmons is from Australia, so a starting point guard. Joel Embiid is from Cameroon in Africa. So starting center. I mean, you, you know, you, you, we, this is a global franchise. We just spent, a, you know, a week or so in China playing preseason games. It's, we played a regular season game in London last year. I mean, this is a this is a global property. So we have brands that are both growing in value and growing in in influence and presence. It provides opportunity to do other things and build other things. And so for us, we think we think real estate is is really interesting. I mean, we wouldn't be the first ones in there. I mean, if you look around at every arena and stadium. You know, in the U.S., um, the, the development around those businesses is worth more. You know, there's there's more retail going up. There are better um, better prices in on condos and apartments. The um, incredible mixed use facilities that seem to be emerging out of out of nowhere. You look at Sacramento, the 13 acre development. You look at what Detroit's doing, building rebuilding a whole downtown around their sports properties. I mean, um, I was just in Milwaukee. They've got a whole I think they have 10 acres that they're developing. And so I, I think our brands are bigger, the business is bigger, the risk is higher, and it's a way to, to take some take some risk and spread it out over multiple different businesses. So I, I, I think it's just a function of this is becoming a real business now. Just the natural evolution of things. No, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I do want to wrap this up here as I realize uh, you got a busy day ahead of you here. Just one or two more questions for you. And and the first, this first one I'll tie back, I guess, to to my first, uh, what we were talking about earlier about being family. Um, so you're a strong supporter of family values at the office, but I can also imagine that being so innovative and being first all the time ends up being pretty cutthroat. How do you and your companies end up balancing a culture where you have that competitive tenacity, but you also balance it with some of the, you know, principles like palms up and being a team first mentality that you also espouse? Yeah, I, I hope it's not cutthroat. I think like in particular, you know, most of our, our group here, like the majority of our people are, are in sales, you know, um, this is a sales and marketing organization. Our ticket sales group in particular, I think, has done an incredible job of creating an environment where, you know, it's collaborative and it's team first, but it's not perfect. You know, we, we, you know, we have a great Jake Reynolds is our, is our leader in that group. And it's like, I think one of the elite emerging executives in all sports. 
maybe all business in terms of creating culture and creating an environment where you want to come in and win together. And I, I think that's that's the fun part. There's plenty of business to go around. And there's plenty of opportunity and plenty of promotions and plenty of things to go grab. But but to the extent we, we can root for each other, like that's that's the kind of environment that I work really well in and I and I, I, I hope that millennials would agree. They seem to from the results. I mean, who wouldn't want to work in a place like that? It does sound like fun. Um, and I think you would, you I would know as well as anybody. What's that? You would know as well as anybody. Yeah, well, I have had a little experience. But um, as, I, as I can tell, we got to get you off to your next uh, commitment here. We will let you go. Again, thank you so much for being a resource for us and our listeners here on Sports Business Nation. Scott, this has been incredibly insightful. Before we let you go, do you have any parting pieces of advice for our listeners? Yes, just one. Make sure that they listen to all your podcasts. Listen to your sage advice. I think you're amazing, incredible, and I'm rooting for you at school. Ah, I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you very much. Luckily, it's your advice we're here for more so than mine, but uh, glad you're a fan, and, and hey, hopefully we'll have you back here on in the future. I hope so. Take All right, care. be well, Scott. Before we end Season 1 and take a break for the holidays, let's reflect on some of Scott's main points from our conversation. And uh, what we talk about amongst ourselves here is about you know, if we are not making mistakes, we're not pushing hard enough. I mean, one, one of the things we like to do here is be different and be innovative and be first and get out in front and think about life a little differently. And if, if you do that, if you if you choose to do any one of those things, your likelihood of failure goes up dramatically. And, um, and I think the extent that you do trip and fall, it's okay um, as long as you pop up a little quicker. Trying to find ways of doing things differently is the only way to innovate. But Scott does point out that it comes with the inherent risk of possible failure. If you want to do things in the safest way, then you're probably best sticking to the book and doing things the way it's been done before. However, for those individuals and companies who want to push frontiers, failure is going to come with the territory, so try to take the mistakes that come along the way as learning opportunities, because they're going to happen, whether you like it or not. David Stern, I just saw a guy who, you know, he was in China in 1982. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, people weren't talking about China as a market. And now, of course, everybody, you know, all the sports leagues, everybody's kind of run into it. Um, but that's real leadership and that is that's foresight and that's thinking differently and that's taking a chance okay so while not all of us have been lucky enough to work with the likes of david stern scott's stories about the innovators he's worked with in the past make it seem almost obvious in hindsight 20 years later it's obvious to all of us the potential power of the international market for american sports yet innovators like david stern got out in front of the momentum and were the first to break ground as a result, now 20 years later in 2018, the NBA is renowned for its international presence, and it's no surprise that decades ago, that same global focus was a league priority before any other sports leagues had even realized the opportunity. I guess my lessons are, one, if, if you're not failing, you're not pushing, and two, don't make the same mistake twice, and three, what are the lessons you learned and how can you apply them, not only for yourself, but for the benefit for others? Anytime you're lucky enough to get some time with somebody as knowledgeable as Scott O'Neill and they give you three key pieces of advice in less than 20 seconds, you're a fool if you don't end on that. Scott tells us one, if you're not failing, you're not pushing. So go beyond your comfort zone and see what you're capable of. Two, don't make the same mistake twice. So while it's okay to fail once for anyone, learn from your experiences and grow from there. Then three, what are the lessons you learned and how can you apply them moving forward to make the world a better place? I think for season one, we're going to leave you with that. As we conclude today's episode, we want to thank you all for joining us on Sports Business Nation and do hope you enjoyed our conversation. 
We'll look forward to having you join us again next week for another deep dive into today's real world of sports business. But until then, please do visit our website at www.sportsbusinessnation.com and follow us on all your social media like Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Also, do be sure to tell your friends and family about our show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes to enjoy each of our guests' expert insights and perspectives every week. This has been a Sports Business Nation production. I'm your host, Ryan Deal, signing off until next time.